Hello, and welcome back to the podcast that has yet to be named. Today we are joined by Jody Gross, a men's coach and retreat leader. Tim and I and Jody have a wide-ranging discussion. First, we talk about Jody's story, then we look at sweat lodges as a men's ritual. We discuss men's greatest fear and men's greatest desire. We discuss how the modern man has seemed to have lost touch with their bodies. We look at intent and bantering. We talk about wilderness as a tool. We discuss hierarchy versus rank. We look at rites of passage. We talk about having a name, the lack of elders in our culture and society, about naming things, and last but not least, books. All right. Well, good morning. Welcome to the uh, podcast that is yet to be named. Uh, so I have a new tradition. Are you ready, Jody? Describe yourself in four words. Um, curious, um, adventure, compassion, seeker. Great. Thank you. You did well. I'm I'm. I'm a- I imagine I'm going to free some people up with that question a few times, but it has a purpose. I need like a four-word bio to put in for the episode and the show notes. And I'm like, well, oh, why so should you I? guys aren't going to do it too. I thought, oh, <laughs> well, I can tell you what mine is. Um, I put on there a uh, human, author, philosopher, and arborist. How about you, Tim? Four words. Go. Frozen. Uh, By uh, an enthusiast, uh, uh, seeker, um, uh, friend and um, curious. Awesome. Thank you. I figure, why should I do all the work coming up with these show notes when I could just have everyone else do it for me? Yeah. But, uh, all right. Well, Tim, I'll let you kick her off. Hi, Jody. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming out and agreeing to you know, come join us this morning and have a conversation. I was actually thinking about the other day when we were talking about getting together, uh, we're like, Oh, let's get together. And then in my mind, I started having these questions about some of your story. And I was like, wait a second. I'm like, we should do the podcast first. But I want to like be asking you all these questions and stuff beforehand. And I know some of it we have gotten into, mm-hmm. uh, like when we first met, but, uh, <clears throat> I was like, oh, we should probably record that conversation, you know. Uh, but I'd love to know, just hear a little bit about your story so and the work that you do um, and kind of what drew you into doing the, the retreats and the men's work and just, you know, the wilderness adventuring and, and all of that. Yeah, sure. I, um, and I, too, have been thinking a little bit since we, we chatted. Um so the alignment is you're inviting me in to share my story and, and my experience in working with men. And in essence, that's really at the center of what I do is, is the invitation. So what are we here to invite men and women in this podcast to join us into? Um, and when I think of the invitation, it's, um, it's around creating safety, um, acceptance, um, and belonging, right? Because um, 
we're not going to go anywhere that I think is is valuable, uh, significant, unless we're really willing to take our masks off and be authentic. And that's not something that's um, supported in our culture. So, so here we are. Uh, you want to know my story? Um, boy, I, how long do you have? Um, as long as you, as long as you need. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, even that's an interesting, open-ended question in terms of like, wh- what, what is my story? Um, um, and what parts of it are really, um, you know, kind of salient to this conversation? Um, I, I, I guess I'll, I'll sort of, um, well, I'll give you a little background. Um, my, my, my dad was a, um, uh, a naturalist, not by profession. He was a, um, uh, elementary school principal, but he was a camp counselor, wilderness canoe guide. Um, so I, I followed toe. Um, he started taking me into the wilderness when I was 11 and my dad was not a, religious man but i think of him as a very spiritual man because he was connected so much with nature so i spent my youth in the woods um i was always out doing stuff um kind of fast forward to when i graduated college i i took over a, a uh, my first job was taking over for a teacher that had um a self-contained class of emotionally disturbed boys, true sweat hogs. I mean, it was a tough group. And my experience, I wasn't a parent at the time, um, was that teaching uh, is maybe second to being a parent in terms of the mirror uh, and that it reflects yourself. Um, so it was a really challenging job. Um, fortunately, um, you know, like, uh, Telemachus in, in the Odyssey in that, that pain and suffering, uh, my mentor, a mentor showed up. He was, um, the social worker at, at the school and just uh, an amazing man. And he really took me under his wing and which in part led me to get into therapy for the first time. And out of that connection led me to, um, uh, doing my first men's weekend, um, which terif- absolutely terrified me. And out of that really opened my calling to work with men. And I've been doing it for almost 40 years since. Um, So sort of in between or in there, uh, actually that that therapist led me to a connection out out west. And I uh, started going out to the Lakota Sioux reservations for because that was my spiritual calling. 
So um, that was a significant piece to my, my spiritual connection, very much with, you know, earth honoring ways aligned with my, my uh, uh, connection with, with nature. Question on that. How did you, how did you go about like connecting with and just, you just showed up? Is that like when you just show up to the Lakota tribe, like the reservation? Yeah, it was, um, my, my therapist was part of a, a, a therapist group that met once a year for their own sort of retreat support. And one of those therapists, a good friend of mine, uh, my therapist, um, was out in Nebraska and connected with, um, and so as she knew my connection, she said, Hey, why don't you, why don't you call him? And, uh, I did. And sort of kind of like my experience with the men's weekend, um, I call him up. I have a 45 minute conversation in which at the end I had agreed to go out. He was going to connect me with his, his blood brother, uh, a Sundance leader. I hang up the phone and I was like, what did I just do? <laughs> like, I, again, terror. Um, um, I, I didn't ask you at the beginning, what, is there any protocol around language in the podcast? Nope, none whatsoever. Okay, all right. Just uh, in case, uh, in the spontaneity of... Um, <laughs> so he, he set me up. Uh, I, I went out, flew out, met him. He drove me to uh, Rick Thomas's place, and he drove me out to uh, Elmer Running, who was the medicine man out at this uh, Rosebud Reservation. So I just had my backpack no plans uh, other than my expectation that I would work for him for food. So I get there, he, uh, they drive off and uh, I went to the house. I was like, uh, where's, where's uh, Norbert? And uh, they said, Oh, he just left. He, oh, when's he coming back? Well, like three days. So it was my first initiation out there was um, a three day fast. So I just I hung out. Um, I played with the kids. Um, his wife said to me at one point, um, you know, here's a little piece of like how elders are treated and modeling. He said, uh, you know, he shouldn't have to pick his own sage. Would you go pick sage for him? So I, I picked bags and bags of, of uh, desert sage out there. And so I waited for him and uh, just hung out with the, with the family and until uh, he returned. It, it was, it was um, another initiation. It was very confronting. And, uh, and then he came back and we, I spent two weeks doing ceremony, putting men up on the hill, sweat lodge, um, yeah, yeah, it was very powerful. Huh. Awesome. Yeah. Do you think the three-day absence was designed or just a matter of circumstance? Well, I'm not sure of the distinction of that, um, right. that question. Um, you know, I, I just trusted that uh, that's how it was supposed to be. 
Um, yeah, it was, you know, it's, it's a lot of the teachings that I later received from being with native people out there that there's, there's, I don't know if I should use the word always, but there often is an element of sacrifice and suffering. You know, this, the whole sweat lodge, um, mm-hmm. is you suffer for your prayers, you know, unlike in the white culture, you know, we uh, I wasn't a church going person, but, you know, people dress up, get all dressed and sit properly and let somebody else, right, the priest, the minister, do their prayers. But in uh, in the Lakota ways, um, you know, we, we suffer for our prayers. So uh, it was kind of an introduction into that. Hmm. Yeah, interesting, because I found I think sometimes things like that with certain cultures, it's not... Not necessarily by design, but it's more that they just have a different sense of time and commitment. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, it wasn't disrespectful. It's just they see things so differently. Whereas, you know, in our culture, they'd be like, oh, my God, I arranged to be here. And then he takes off for three days. How rude. Whereas to oh, him, it's just a different perception of how things work. Absolutely. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, out there, they call it Indian time. Right. right. right? Or ceremony time. And I would get caught asking, like, OK, when's the sweat lodge? You know, when people get there. Yeah. Right, right. It is, it is a, when you start to understand that, it makes it, well, there's lessons in that, right? That, that alone, there's a lesson in that. Yeah, so. and, and just how um, structured we are in the, in the dominant culture with, you know, time is, is, is on our wrist. You know, we eat when we look at the clock and go, it's lunchtime instead of when's my body hungry? You know, just little things like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Did you so this is the your first experience out there? You you went other times and spent more time there? Yeah. Yeah. Then I would go back for uh, Humblecha, which uh, we call Vision Quest. Um, So to go out and go up, uh, go up on the hill to pray. Yeah. What was the vision quest like? How, how, how long of an experience was that? It's however long you commit for. Here, um, see me again going into time. How long is that? <laughs> right, right, right. People want to know how hot is the sweat lodge? You know, it's, yep. it's however hot the spirits, uh, you know, need to make it. <laughs> it's hot. <laughs> it, it is hot. It is hot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, then. I've done a few in there. That's yeah, uh, that's quite the experience, you know. And and something. I mean, I don't want to do because I'm I'm not a native person. I don't want to do uh, like teachings of the Lakota. Um, mm-hmm. But in the connection with men's work, um, my understanding uh, is that originally the sweat lodge was uh, designed for men. Because women are naturally attuned and connected with their bodies through the monthly, their monthly uh, cycle. Mm-hmm. And it was a way for men to get into their bodies. And I thought that was always a really interesting, uh, you know, it's not how it's, it's done out there. I mean, I did a lot of mixed sweats. And, um, but just as a piece in terms of... Um, 
that, that whole piece of having men move from their heads to their hearts and being mm-hmm. present in their bodies, I think is a, you know, it's a beautiful connection to the sweat. Are the lodges in, uh, in that tradition, is there a, like a particular age that children would be welcome into the sweat, like kind of a coming of age part of the coming of age ceremony? You know, that's, that's interesting, Tim, that you ask, because I was just thinking about this, this image that I, I had when I went out. It was one of my humbleches. Um, and after, I, I think it was after I came down from the hill. So there's a sweat before you go up and there's a sweat to receive you. You know, it's very initiatory, kind of in the initiatory process. And then there was another sweat, you know, I was kind of, uh, that I wasn't involved with. And I remember Tim seeing, uh, I want to say it was a three-year-old boy. And he was in and out of the lodge, you know, the door would, you know, he would open the door and he'd go in. And there was this just sort of flow of allowing, here's this young kid. Um, in the lodge, out of the lodge when he needed to. Um, so I, you know, from a experiential place, I think it, they, they, they really nurture, um, that, that it's part of the way of life. Um, I'm sure there are more ceremonial sweats for maybe teenage boys, um, but just in terms of the connection of allowing young kids to participate was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. We did an interview. Tim wasn't on. He couldn't do it. So our other sometimes co-host, Dwayne, and I interviewed a friend of Dwayne's who's done very similar stuff with a different tribe up in Canada. And he told this great story where they, they just ended a sweat and uh, one of the elders was you know, getting out of the lodge and he just lets a big fart rip. Just <laughs> And he makes a joke about it, and everyone laughs. And, and this guy was coming from a, a, a non-Native tradition, a non-First Native tradition, was really bothered by it. And he said something to his mentor. He said, you know, I'm, I'm really wor- trying to work this through because it just seems so disrespectful. And he got this great lesson from his from his First Nations mentor. He's like, he says, we have a, we have a very advanced sense of humor. While things are serious, we don't take them seriously. He's, and I'm paraphrasing that. Yeah, That's yeah, not Dennis's yeah, words. Yeah. And I found that to be such a great lesson when it comes to these matters that, you know, it's like, I love the way you described it. You know, the sweat lodge is really a, a, a men's tradition, not to be sexist, but it's a men's tradition to for men to get in touch with themselves because we lack that. And that's, it's a great way to look at it. And it is serious, but it doesn't mean it has to be that like in, in the, in the, you know, the Western tradition where it's ritualistic and it's so serious that you can't joke about it and you can't take it for what it's worth, which is, you know, just getting back in touch with yourself. And you know what? People fart. It just happens. You know, it's like, and if you don't laugh at it or, or have fun with it. And he, he had a great quote. He, he basically told Dennis, he said, you know, if we, if we couldn't laugh, if we didn't have such a good sense of humor, you would look at our history and you would cry yourself to death. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's, it's really kind of interesting when you. Yeah, you yeah. start to think about that, and then as you take those lessons from from a from a culture that is so engrossed in nature, and start to put them in practice in your own life, it's really really beneficial. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just it's you don't have to you don't have to take it so it's serious, but you don't have to take it seriously. Yeah, I like that, and I certainly experienced that out there. The there's there's definitely 
I, I wouldn't know how to characterize it, but there is a, a native uh, uh, sense of humor that is wonderful. And to your point, Tony, what I like about that is, um, you know, again, when I was thinking about the men's work is it's not shaming. I think, you know, like farting, body, bodily um, experiences, I think in our culture, although we laugh, I think there's much more shame. There's, we're in a shame-based culture, right? And to be able to laugh at, you know, our humanity um, is sort of the opposite of a shame-based culture. Mm-hmm. That's a great way of looking at it. And I, yeah, I think you're right. I think things like that that are just natural and this is not shame based. It's just what it is. Like, yeah. it's, why should you be shamed because you farted? Right. <laughs> you know, right, right. it's a bodily function, right? Yeah. You know, <laughs> should, should make fun of it, right? And and, and it, it, you know, it is what it is. But that's that's a wonderful, wonderful well, way to look at it. Too seriously and taking yourself too serious. Yeah. You know, right. Right. What's that? Is what is it, Tim? Rule number forty-two or sixty-two? So I think it's 62. 62, rule number 62. Yeah. Then you can't tell anybody what rule number 62 is. They just have to look it up. Yeah, yeah one guy yeah. out there <laughs> said to me, we were sitting around, because there's a lot of sitting around and sharing coffee. At, um, and he said, um, he said, you know, we tease everybody. Everybody gets, you know, teased. If you can't take it, we'll, we, won't, we won't tease you. Um, but it, it's sort of that, uh, I'll sort of equate it to, you know, kind of that male bantering, you know, in the locker room or buddies, you know, it's, it's one way that we, we show our love and affection for each other is, you know, you're an asshole, you know? Yeah. Um, and, yeah. Uh, I, I tell people all the time, if we're not picking on you, we probably don't like you. Yeah. It's yeah, pretty it's, much what it boils down to. Like, if we're not saying anything to you and just sort of letting you go on your own way, we're probably trying to get rid of you. Take the hint. <laughs> get it's, like a, it's like a big brother thing to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, like big brothers always pick on their little brothers. But, like, if somebody else picks on them, that's, you know, mm-hmm. they're going to have their back. But, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. It's the way that you show your affection and, like, you know, growing up in a house of brothers and being the little brother, that was my experience, you know? And then mm-hmm. now when I – I've see it people like you know when i'm really fond of somebody then you're like goofing around with them a lot more you know mm-hmm. fun at, uh, and yet here again making a connection back to you know to to men and men's work is that there is a there's a maybe it's not so fine a line of uh certainly i've heard from hundreds and hundreds of men around uh you know men being bullied and picked on and uh, shamed, you know, men's number one fear is to be shamed. And our number one desire, right, when I ask men that, they go, oh, sex. I go, no, it's not sex. It's belonging. And so the sort of um, that that teasing and and yeah and i love to do it my son and i he is just uh he's masterful at it um and yet it's also the edge that where men can um you know be passive aggressive and it can be a a shaming bullying energy that makes uh for 
the lack of safety, right? If we want to invite men into uh, a safe space, how do we do that and still keep uh, lightness and humor? I think with so many things like that, it comes down to intent, right? You know, to pick on somebody or tease somebody a little bit, the intent of it, right, would change the nature of it. And I think it's such a good ritual because to be able to do it well and with good intent, you have to have a familiarity with people, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you can't, it's hard to, it's hard to tease a stranger. Yeah. So it's a way of getting to know somebody. It's almost a ritual in and of itself of mm-hmm. getting to know somebody and, and then also displaying that fact to other people, you know, like Tim and I have a shared history over the last couple of years and tree work and stuff and we get together and we, mm-hmm. we have a certain thing, you know, stories that we can tell and that are, that are joking and it shows to other people what our connection is mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and how and then just through the process of doing that it develops it and um but i'm curious jody from your perspective you know this like i said that going back to you know the sweat lodge being a, a men's ceremony to basically get back in touch with their body and i think that's in a lot of native cultures whether it be native american first nations or any you know native culture that's a prominent thing how did we lose that in our society today why well, don't how, where did it go because it's certainly not the way I was raised, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, I think, uh, and it's something that I'm uh, writing in, in the book that I'm working on, um, I think significantly was the Industrial Revolution. You know, when we went from an agrarian culture to an industrialized one, where now, instead of fathers and sons working side by side, um you know, dads, dads went to the city, went to the office and, uh, you know, put on suits and ties. Um, so I think that was a significant, um, uh, you know, that was a, that was a real piece. I was trying to think of, um, you know, it's a little different to your question, but I think related, and that is, You know, historically, you go back, you know, as hunters and gatherers and men, um, if you were out hunting, you weren't talking, you were stealth, you were quiet, you might be with other hunters. But I think there's this um, part of our DNA is to be uh, quiet. and, and that shows up, right, in, in the differences between men and women. You know, women were gatherers and they were out talking and sharing and being part of the family and all of that, where men were much more um, reclusive and isolated. Interesting. So I want to just, uh, something that you said, I, I agree, agreed in part, but it's, I have a little pet peeve, and that is around intent. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I, I notice, I mean, I experience it and I hear it, uh, uh, from lots of people, you know, they'll say something and it'll be hurtful to the, to another. And the response is, well, wasn't my intent as if that abdicates any responsibility for, uh, uh, for what was what transpired there, mm-hmm. right? So I think you're you're right. There is a, the familiarity. As I get to know Tim, you know, I I, I might poke a little bit more. Um, so I know the boundaries, 
and, and right where I don't know you, um, I'm going to be much more um, reticent to to jump into that. Um, although I know some guys that they don't give a shit who they're with, <laughs> and if yeah. they're just man, they're just firing, and it's like, um, but it, yeah, it just uh, it just poked. A, um, when I hear people say like. Uh, it wasn't my intent as if it was a showstopper, like uh, I, I'm now not responsible. Um, yeah. I think that there's also uh, a skill, you know, being the youngest of four boys, I developed the skill of how to handle being teased and kind of poked at and how to yeah, yeah. respond, you know, and not everyone is taught that skill mm-hmm. and they'll uh, take someone uh just playfully trying to connect you know uh it's all i guess it comes back to the way that we learned you know how did we learn what was our early experience Uh, yeah yeah i was at a um uh a men's retreat back in 86 or 7 with robert bly and michael mead and this topic came up and mead was talking about just that that banter is like having a catch with someone they throw it at you and you catch it and you throw the zinger back and it's a game right men love games Mm -hmm. where it gets again this fine line is um uh, where sarcasm comes in right which is like a veiled um passive aggressive communication then rather than it being a game and we're throwing it back and forth it becomes darts, right? So it's thrown, and now there's a piercing, right? There's a wounding. It touches an old wound. Um, so it, it's it, there's a lot of subtlety, mm. right? And, yeah, I, and I don't know many men. I have I have a few men in my life where, when that happens, when the game goes from a ball to a dart. They'll say, you know, they'll hold a boundary like, ouch. So it gives that feedback. A lot of, a lot of people don't do that, right? They withhold and it builds up, builds up, and they either go away or they explode. I have a friend who uh, did not have any brothers and was picked on a lot through high school. And uh, I knew him back in high school and he was – you know, always kind of the, the smelly kid in, in school and everyone was not very pleasant to him. But now that he has a group of friends and has like people around him and he'll be in those banter circles, it's interesting to see and he rubs people the wrong way a lot because any sort of innocent banter and people playing that game with him, mm-hmm. he hits back hard yeah. and he goes to the throat real quick. Right. And people are always like, oh, what's up with that guy? And I'm like, that's just the way it was never, he was never made fun of or played that game in, in a pleasant way, you know, but you can still yeah. see it now in his late thirties. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he just, he just freaking goes for the jugular every time. Like people are like, Ugh, ow. <laughs> right. I, I, yeah. To your point, I, um, I had this uh, story in my head when I was dating my then uh, about to be wife. She was the eldest of, of seven. Um, she had five brothers. And I had this story that was like, great. She is going to be playful and knows how to, you know, because she's got brothers. And just the opposite. She was very, 
she was wounded from all the, so it was not something that was safe to do with her. Yeah. Yeah, I think Tim's right, because I'm the youngest of three. I have two older brothers, and, you know, our relationship growing up as, you know, like teenagers and stuff, like, we were very physical. We, you know, we pounded on each other, hit each other, you know, if if somebody stepped out of line, somebody got kicked, you know, we were, and that's, and it's just kind of the way it was, and I hadn't realized how physical we were until, you know, my wife, when I met her, my girlfriend, then she has two younger brothers who are twins, they're fraternal twins, and they weren't physical at all. Like, physicality in their household was almost kind of grinned upon. I'm like, if we were, if me and my brothers were playing together, somebody wasn't bleeding, it something was wrong. And it was, you know, it was just us being rough on each other, you know, football games in the front yard. And I hadn't realized how much that physicality actually played into, you know, into our relationships and that competitive spirit that was... We didn't have super close relationships as brothers, as children. It wasn't until later in life that we learned how to deal with those. But there was there was that history there that allowed us to kind of, and it was it was different. It wasn't it wasn't. I thought it was normal, right? But when you've only ever seen one aspect, that's normal. Do you still have that in your life with with your male friends? Uh, no, not so much. <clears throat> Although. You know, my profession as a tree climber is physical, so we I think we would compete on different ways, mm-hmm. not necessarily like in, in wrestling or brawling or arm wrestling or hitting each other, right, but right. there's definitely a physical component. Like, I can do this physical thing and you cannot as well as yeah, I can. Yeah. I think there was definitely that aspect to it as well. The result, I think it's where I developed, a, you know, that love of hard work and that... Mm. I don't want to say physically abusive job, but a job that makes you physically tired sure. at the end of the and day. Abusive. Because somehow, the hard, the more tired I was, the better the job was. You know, like that. I've learned that that was also kind of a self-flagellation kind of thing too. But yeah. I think that's where some of that comes from. Is just that physical competitiveness. Yeah, I think part of the the banter and the physicality of growing up was also knowing your place, like in the pack. Like this is your wolf pack. And having some belonging, you know, uh, attached with that, you know, it's mm-hmm. like you feel, uh, yeah, I guess if you weren't like the physical part and uh, the banter back and forth kind of just gave you your place in, in the pack, but you knew you had a pack, mm-hmm. you know, because when I, when I was a kid, that's all I wanted. And actually through therapy, I've realized that there were places that I didn't get that and it actually created wounds. Right. Uh that I carried into adulthood of not having that wolf pack, you know, cause all I wanted really was to belong and be a part of, you know, but I did feel that when I was with my brothers and the banter was happening and the physicality and stuff, you know, there was, there was a belonging to that. I think that's a significant loss that, that men feel, you know, as we uh, marry and get out into the working world is we, we lose that, that wolf pack and we, you know, may still have friends, but that, that time and that camaraderie and all of what we're talking about gets lost. And I hear that all the time from men. Like I miss that brotherhood. Yeah. Tim and I've talked about this before. I've been fortunate through my life, um, you know, to always have a group of friends where that I've never really lost that in my personal life. Um, You know, and, and I hadn't realized the power of it. Until, you know, as you grow older and then you start having kids and my friends have kids and you, and you and we start to see them come full circle and now they get together and they're, you know, in their mid to mid to 
early 20s and they get together and they're having that banter back and forth and you you see it from the outside looking in now not from the inside looking out and you and it's just it's i didn't realize it until probably six nine months ago one of our friends they hadn't they hadn't associated with us for a while we get together just background there's probably i call it the golden circle there's a dozen, 15 of us that get together have been for the last 30, 35 years. We get together two to three times a year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and we all have children and, and they get together. And But there was, you know, people have come and gone from the group, come back. And there was one of their older sons came back and he just didn't fit in. Like, and the kids were just like, you could tell he didn't fit in. Mm-hmm. And I really noticed that, that like we had passed that down to them, that kind of friendly banter. And then from seeing that, I've really started to understand, you know, a lot of people just don't have that. And yeah. it's it's very, very important to have that and to build that because without it, what are you going to – how are you going to express yourself or talk about things or – well, you won't, right? And, it, and connect, it's so unfortunate. And, and but, belong, right? Mm-hmm, right? Exactly. And belong and have that belonging. And I hadn't realized it, you know, for so long because, well, you know, my parents were loving and they, they provided a, a house and a place and I was never abused or anything like that. I never had a deep connection with them. Um, and I spent the early part of my life looking for that deep connection. And then I spent a longer time looking for it when I realized, well, shit, I had it. I just didn't see it, you know? And then I didn't take advantage of it until, until later in life. But that's okay, right? The best lessons are hard learned, I think. I wonder how much, uh, you know, because nowadays there's anti-bullying campaigns and there's zero, you know, Tolerance for bullying, you know, and how much of what the line is with that, because if if people are being steered away and shied away from any sort of banter like that, that could be considered bullying. And then, you know, parents don't want their kids to be bullied at all. And the kids don't, you know, they're just how much if that's just the disservice, because there is a fine line of learning that skill, like that human connection piece of being able to banter and kind of volley that back and forth you yeah. know and then if, and then you see people who never learned it and that later in life they're having a rough time because they're taking everything so personally right right well i mean i i worked in the school systems uh for many years and um i i never found that the the anti-bullying you know crossed into trying to uh, sanitize everything it was really the disenfranchised, you know, those kids that, that were on the outside um, and and kids that uh, bullying had a very different feel than, than the banter. But you're right. I mean, look at, you know, uh, comedians these days. Uh, we're, we're in a, um, in a culture now where it's, it's like there, any uh, edginess is, you know, not PC and, and come down upon. So. That's uh, what we were talking. Just to go back a little bit, what we were talking about before is really like seeing men lose that, you know, uh, is one that like lose that connection and kind of uh, that's one of the things that drew me into doing men's work and started doing the retreats in the last year is I just realized I looked around and a lot of people and even people who have some community in some of the places that I hang out, you know, they, there's a, there's an underlying story of, I used to love to uh, kayak. I used to love to go fishing. I used to, they, there's the, I used to, 
you know, or the group mm-hmm. of friends, mm-hmm. you know, being around and having your boys and, uh, but then also having a group of friends that you could be vulnerable and honest with and just realize there was such a lack of that in the world. And most men, it's like now they work 80 hours a week and they you don't understand, you, you hear a lot, you don't understand, you know, it's mm-hmm. uh, three kids and I got to work and this and I got the house and the rental property and this and that and my boss and there's just no time for those things anymore. And they lose that connection and next Absolutely. thing you know, they have no community of men. Mm-hmm. that you could just go and have that banter with. There's times where, you know, I could be hanging out with Tony or just, just in a group of friends and guys and all mm-hmm. we're doing is just talking shit to each other. And afterwards, I leave there so jazzed up and just energized and in a good mood and it was mm-hmm. like, man, I needed that. You know, mm-hmm. a couple weeks, like two weeks ago, I, I, I was hanging out with a couple buddies and we stood around outside in the freezing cold for an hour and we were just laughing and telling dirty jokes and whatever and all of us everybody said afterwards well it's been a while since i I did this you know and Mm -hmm. just uh but so that was one of the things that drew me into doing the men's work and starting the men's retreats is because i realized how fortunate i am to have that community in my life and have men that i can call on to you know to be vulnerable with but also just to to have that connection so uh that's why I became so passionate about creating the retreats and gathering people. And now in the, like I clearly done lots of retreats too. It's like the banter that happens on the men's retreats and the, mm-hmm. the dirty jokes and the, the connection and the, the deep belly laughs that happen that, you know, you don't experience a lot of people don't experience throughout their days. Mm-hmm. Just seeing that. Yeah. So with all that, with building that sense of community, learning that, that bantering and all that, how does how do you see wilderness or adventure or however you want to describe it, getting back into the, the outdoors, playing into all that? What role does that play? Well, uh, to me, it plays a significant role because to me, um, the natural world is such is the ultimate teacher. Um, so it's a perfect, uh, I would say we're where I am happiest and I don't know if it's where I've done my best work, but uh, maybe I'll say it is, uh, is on wilderness canoe trips and it's allowing the, the flow and the teachings of, of, of being out in the wild uh, away from phones, having to be more self-reliant, self-aware, conscious of your environment uh, what's better than that? You know, from this, the, the, you know, very, uh, kind of outward, uh, it could be mosquitoes or it could be raining. And my dad taught me this, um, when I was a boy that it's like, there, there are no bad days out there. I mean, I had a trip with him, uh, we, we were up uh, around the Allagash area, but we weren't doing the Allagash. Um, I think it rained every day, every day. And most of those rains were that, you know, that light, constant. And yeah, as a boy, uh, absolutely it sucked. And, but I watched my dad, like as, a, as a, the boy in him, show me how to make a fire in, you know, in the middle of a rain with no tarp, no nothing, you know, no dry wood and the thrill of making a fire. Um, 
So when I bring people out, inevitably there's the complaints about the weather and that starts to fade as time goes on. Now, now that's just one aspect. Um, you know, it's not like I just sit back and let, let nature, uh, but that's the, that's the, uh, the undercurrent of everything that, uh, goes on out there, um, you know, I, I will often say the outer world reflects the inner world and vice versa. So the, the storms that brew, what's what's brewing in you? And inevitably there is there is a connection. So yeah. Go ahead, Jimmy. No, go ahead. You're good. Well as I say, I see the the connection with the outdoors and the, it brings it back to the physicality we were talking about before, you know, the, the wrestling and the, you know, uh, just the physicality of kids. But for men, sharing a physical experience creates vulnerability real quick. And getting outside and being present and connecting with nature, it just grounds anybody, you know. So for the men's work, getting people outside to do an actual activity you know, paddling down the Allagash and being out there, right. you know, at first our egos will flare up and be like, well, mosquitoes and it's raining and what am I doing out there? But when you actually surrender into the experience and just say, there's no bad days mm-hmm. having this experience and just be present, there's such, there's such a power in that. The other thing that I think is in part, in part of what I'm hearing in you uh, saying there, Tim, is that it, it also brings out, you know, the ego as well as hierarchy, right? We're a very hierarchical um, culture. So you've got shame and you've got hierarchy. So men are always vying for how, where am I in the pecking order of this group? And often it's, um, there's self-shaming right? This guy's better, he's bigger, he's faster, whatever it is. So that shows up very quickly out there that, you know, the guy who's more comfortable and the guy who's least comfortable being, you know, splitting wood or, and, and that provides the, also the, the opportunities for creating safety, authenticity, acceptance, um, to make it more, I like my, my friend um, Paul Dunyon talks about the distinction between hierarchy and rank, right? So if I have, um, you know, a branch fall on my, on my roof, I'm calling Tim. No offense, Tony. I hear you're good too. Um, He's I, closer. You, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm calling you. You know, you have rank, Right. Um, whereas if I got a, you know, I cut my leg, I'm going to call my friend who's a doctor, you know, that's rank. It's not a put down. It's not competitive. It's giving, giving rank to the person who, who has earned it. Yeah, I think, you know, I agree with everything you say about getting out into the woods and wilderness, whatever you want to call it. Um, I, and yeah, there's an element of risk there too, right? Because even a, even a canoe trip can turn, there's risk there. Like 
if you're 10 miles out and something goes wrong, you've got to go 10 miles to get help, exactly. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that's, that's an important part, like almost perturbation, right? So the same lessons can be learned quicker when you have that perturbation or that element of risk. But I think mostly for me, it's, it becomes a matter of time. And we had a discussion. One of the great things about doing this podcast is to talk to cool people, right? We had a discussion about high-speed travel and low-speed travel. And basically, if you travel too fast, it takes time for your soul. And I use that term very loosely. You can define it however you'd like. But it takes time for your soul to catch up. So if you get on a plane and fly to California, I find when I do that, it takes me two or three days to really feel grounded again and in a place. And I think it's because it takes time for my soul, and I'm using that term open-ended to catch up. Whereas I've never had that experience traveling by foot or by canoe or by bicycle. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's a time thing. So, And I don't think – so you put yourself in a situation where your soul can stay intact with yourself, so you can stay as a, as a, as a being. And then you put yourself in a place where even minor concerns now become major concerns because if you're canoeing and it's rainy – hypothermia is a a very real thing you have to worry about you can't just go inside and warm up Um, and then when you start to add those things in i think that's where a lot of it comes down and it gets back to the there's a silence to the woods that is you know that is necessary for certain growth and realization that is important but i think that silence is because you stay grounded and in my experience and i haven't i mean i've spent a lot of time in the woods i done a lot of that i haven't necessarily led groups large groups but in dealing with you know scouting and coming up as kids what i've learned is it's like when the complaining goes away if it goes away because sometimes some people don't ever stop complaining but when it goes away they tend to they're starting to accept their situation and i think it's when their soul catches up right when they become grounded again if it possibly can and i think some people travel so fast so far it might take weeks for that soul to catch up right literally might yeah. take weeks for it to match back up with the body and for them to be grounded again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and having awareness. Um, uh, I'm thinking back to uh, on one of my father-son canoe trips. We were on the west branch of the Penobscot, and not where you go, Tim. <laughs> North of uh, Ripagina's Dam. And, um, a little calmer. What's that? A little calmer. A little calmer, yeah, yeah. Um, and we pulled over for the first time and there was this nice ledge that went down. So we, we pulled over and this one father and son came up last and the father is starting to get out of the canoe. And I say, be really careful. The rocks are slippery. And he's just talking and yammering like he was walking on a sidewalk and he hit that uh, slippery rock and down he went and you know there it was nature providing like you have to be present mm. and if you're not you know bad things can happen that's what I that's what I love about some of the activities that I do uh, the whitewater rafting mm-hmm. and the climbing is you have no choice but to be present in that moment. Mm-hmm. Well, you have another choice, but you're there's there's dire consequences. You know, you it's something mm-hmm. the nature will teach you, and especially in rivers. Rivers are very. Yeah, we humble. were talking about you know sort of young men, you know, and and our uh, tribes or our wolf pack, and um, 
and, and you're talking to the you know to the banter as well as to the 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 rush of putting our bodies right uh, using our bodies uh tony you were talking about the hard work and climbing trees and uh or rafting and i asked my mentor a number of years ago when i was probably a middle-aged man um how do you now create that um that sort of adrenaline rush right i mean um that, that we seek to put our bodies on the line, to challenge ourselves, um, all that sort of fun, good stuff. And I remember him saying to me, um, and I, I almost burst out laughing, but he said, through meditation and yoga. And I'm like, no, no. I mean, but I get it now. I mean, uh, I'm a couple years or so older than you, Tim. Um, and it's different. And yet there's still a part of me that wants that challenge, wants that rush. But it's it's different as I get older. Um, and, and hopefully in part, it's it's more, you know, more initiated. Um, you know, that's another thing that I write about is like in our culture without initiation, you know, young, young men, teenagers do a lot of uh, just stupid stuff to be in their bodies and to be competitive and out of their unconsciousness. Right. So, yeah, love the rafting, being in nature, all that. You have uh, a practice and I'm I'm not going to assume yes, but uh, have you facilitated and done work on the initiation of like into manhood because that's one of the things that i see that we don't have today in society that was a part of every culture up until you know 150 years ago it's like it was always you're a man now there was like this thing that happened where you were proved like proving yourself or the first hunt or first Mm -hmm. kill or Mm -hmm. whatever there's so many different uh, ways to go about that initiation process in different cultures, but we don't have that today. So there's a lot of folk grown-ups that are were never told they were a man and that they exactly you know. yeah. So I, I think you asked in there, do I have workshops on that? I I lead rites of passage. Um, I, I lead them for you know for boys, young men, but I also have for men, you know, that just to your point, that it's like, I want that. I didn't have it and I want it. Yes, I'm older. Um, I don't, no, I don't think I've done really workshops or teachings on it. It is something that I'm writing about to, to your point. It, it's, it's a real void in our culture. So how do we know we're, we're a man? Right. When I ask men that, I often hear things like the first time I got laid. Right. Um, when I got my first job. Um, when I moved out. Yeah. You know, things like that that have nothing to do with what's what's your gold? What's your shadow? Um, what does it mean to be a man? What are those characteristics, qualities, 
behaviors of being a man. It, that's all lacking, right? So we have, we have uh, um, Robert Bly called it a sibling society, right? There's, um, we're a bunch of adolescents running around, sort of running the world, fucking up the world, uh, because there was no initiation, you know, uh, at the risk of, you know, getting political. Look at our past president, very uninitiated, led or is with a lot of shadow. No, no balance of, of healthy masculinity in my judgment. Right. Yeah, I've thought about this, you know, the rite of passage and initiation a lot with the, you know, the pandemic that went on and what, you know, my daughter is, she's 18 now. So she, she had one normal year of high school, right? Her freshman year. Other than that, it was all tainted by pandemic. And she was fortunate in the fact that when she graduated, we could actually go to the high school graduation. Like there were people present, but the classes, two or three classes before her didn't have that. They didn't have that simple, you know, you know, a high school graduation is kind of a, a rite of passage or rite of initiation that, you know, you go through and you stand up there and people pat you on the back. Mm-hmm. And and there's so many out there now that don't have that. I wonder, and they're going to need it and they're going to try and find it some way. I wonder what that will be. And I think not only is that missing, I think, especially for men, I think we, our culture lacks a way for men to come back from traumatic experience, whatever that might be, and tell their story, right? And a to, so that it can be digested and then understood. Yeah. And, you know, I look back at my own experiences, you know, I left home as soon as I possibly could mm-hmm. at 18 years old, I joined the military. Mm-hmm. And when I came back, there was that disassociation. I mean, you, you have any type of traumatic experience, you're going to go through some form of PTSD, right? It's just what it is. The problem comes is when you can't get out of it. So of sure, I experienced PTSD from my military experiences, mm-hmm. but I got over, I moved through it, you know, not by design, just by sheer luck. But I think what affected me the most and was that lack of community. Because, yeah. you know, for four or five years, I was with a group of guys and we did everything together. We went out together. We ate together. We went to the, we took a shit together. Mm-hmm. We literally, you did yeah. everything yeah. together. And some pretty stressful <clears throat> situations. And suddenly one day I'm back home and they're, we're separated by thousands of miles and I have no one to tell those stories to. I have no way to digest that story. And I can remember sitting around with my high school friends who, you know, were still decent people, but we, we weren't even on the same plane. You know, I couldn't, and there was no way for me to, to justify that. So the way I, the way I dealt with it, I started to write. Right. But you know, that's, and I pursued it through education, but I think you're right. I think that missing that rite of passage and then as an addendum to that, missing that ability to tell your story and have it accepted and then move on from it is Mm -hmm. missing, especially for men. Yeah. No, I I really get that. I hear that, Tony. I mean, I hear a lot of the isolation that you experience from that brotherhood to now being on your own. Where, Mm -hmm. where, where are my brothers? people that know me know my experience that i can yeah well, that comes to a lot of the work it makes me think of a lot of the work that you do you know like return to the fire mm-hmm. you know and and, and I'll play, so like the way i see fire is it's a place to tell your story you know it's a place to go and you know as far back as you can go <clears throat> that's 
the role fire played in our society was like that was everyone sat down and told story around fire. Right, so right, right. That spirit of fire. Yep, absolutely. Such a powerful experience. Yeah, yeah. That was that whole piece for me. The nature, the the, the uh, symbology of of the fire, both that it is. Um, that, that's in our DNA, right? That is where men told their stories from the hunt and coming back to uh, after initiation. And, and like, uh, and the connection with um, Sam Keen's book, you know, Fire in the Belly, the fire is our passion, is that uh, uh, energy uh, that, that's just beautiful in men. And so often shamed in our culture, right? It's distorted. And so now we have terms like toxic masculinity. And that just, I rail against that. You know, there's toxic behavior. Yes. Their masculinity is not toxic. It is fucking beautiful and necessary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To go back to Tim's question, when do you become a man? I have an answer. Yeah. And it, it's in, in my own way. For me, what it was is when I finally had a name in this universe. Mm. And so, I don't know what that means yet, but I'm working on it. Can right? you say more about that? Um, what does that mean? Uh, you know, it when you finally have – you can see when you start to understand – the complexity of the universe and your small place in it and you accept it, then I think you can be named. You can say, I am this, right? Or I am not, not on a super, not on a superficial level or, you know, as though my name's Tony or I'm an arborist or whatever, mm -hmm. but on a deep personal level, when you actually can name yourself, then I think that you've crossed a, a borderline somewhere. And I think that for some people that might happen very early for some people, maybe for many people, probably never. And I think, and not to go down the, the old slippery slope of philosophical valley where, you know, it's different for everyone. It is, but I think there's similarities that you can recognize. And um, I think when you can name yourself, when you can say, I am this. Do you, rem this do you remember that, in. that moment or that situation that, that sort of, uh, crystallized for you i think for me it was the recognition of patterns in my own life and starting to see how they all came together mm. right i think that that's what it was for me when i started to realize how all these different pieces what i thought were disparate parts how they all started to fit together and then then i started to understand that i think a little bit mm. and um a lot of it is acceptance right how, never, how old were you i I don't know. I don't know if I could put an age to it right now, Jody. I really don't. I don't think so. And it's as always, it's a work in progress because I've said this quite a few times in the last couple of years. Probably the biggest lesson I've learned is that there is no destination. There is only the journey. And the moment you think you've arrived, you never will. You know, it's just in that understanding that and with acceptance and then starting to understand where is my place in this world? What what is my name for lack of a better term? And how does that work? I think, and I, like I said, I think I saw it through patterns emerging, and I still got a long way to go because there is no destination. There's only the journey. You were going to say something, Tim. Well, I see that. I, I, yeah, I agree with that, and I think it's it's when you recognize the shadow within yourself, you know, and you kind of 
So it's like giving yourself a name and seeing those patterns, but recognizing the shadow that's within all of us. And as a man, we have that shadow. There's, mm-hmm. there's that dark, there's that dark side to us, but understanding and accepting that and yeah. Yeah. understanding the potential impact that that shadow has and seeing it as not something to be ashamed of, but an asset. I have this ability to be useful with that shadow and being able to tell your story. I think that's part of becoming a man and part of that uh, rite of passage is learning your story and how to tell it. Part of learning your story is recognizing the shadow in it and being able to, to share that, you know, and not hide behind it. You know, the it's like before you recognize that shadow, it's the unconscious it's, it's just this unconscious thing that's driving your life. You know, once you become aware of it and there it is, learn to tell that story is when I think you, you truly step into manhood. Mm. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. You know, I want to name something that part of uh, initiation, as we've been talking about now, is, is elders, right? Another void in our culture. <clears throat> why Bly called it a sibling society. We don't have elders really in our culture. And what I hear both of you speaking to is that the, you know, the, the situations and circumstances and events of our lives, right, that, that are challenging. Tony, you were at war and coming back from that and whatever your experiences were there and then the isolation and all of it without elders we're left on our own to to process it and uh you know as we as you know sadly we know that just from the experience of war i think we um it's is it every 24 seconds another vet takes his life something like that, something yeah. like that um, and to me, that's, that's a lack of elders and mentors and, you know, something that, you know, Tim, that's how we met. You called me, um, and, uh, you know, we chatted for a while and I said, well, you know, what, what are you, what are you looking for? What is it? And you were like, I'm, I'm looking for mentors. And, um, and I think I told you, if not then at some point, like you're, you know, what a, mid 30 year old man that's a rare uh you're a rare beast to be in a place in your um experience your psychology however we want to speak of it that you're seeking mentorship at a young age because i think a lot of men don't and they're lost as a result so they're not taking the wounds and turning them, you know, finding the gold in there. And that's what mentors and elders do. No, it's, it's a great point. And definitely, you know, definitely something that's, that's lost having that, you know, that, that fall back on. And, you know, like just can only refer back to my own experience. But I, like I said, what I hadn't realized I was doing is 
my my college education is in philosophy and you know my mentors ended up being books you know people that were long dead mm-hmm. you know i gravitated towards philosophy because it gave me as i now understand it it gave me an operating system mm-hmm. you know something to grab onto because i didn't have those mentors in my life right you know my father was still around and and that was one thing but i didn't have that and i didn't know that i needed it right but i think subconsciously i knew and i reached out so there's lots of ways you know, to have those mentors, um, you know, I hope that, you know, in, in some, in some way, this podcast and pod, these conversations we have, someone can listen to them and that can be like a mentor or, you know, a, a, a sign or, you know, a direction or something that can be pointed down. Right. Open you can have these conversations. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Just that one little, cause I know for me, the, the greatest moments of discovery just happened. It's like that one little thing clicked and it sent me down a path mm. and it opened up another path mm. and, and I think that, you know, when I was describing to you my, you know, getting a name, I keep that open-ended because I don't, it's a different process for everybody and everybody can define that name. The word I use is as different. So I use it very much like I'd use the word soul in my description of low-speed travel. It's, it's something that you have to work through. I can't do it. Right, right. No one else can do it for you. You can, can help. I can give you some suggestions, you know, can turn you on to some good books. I read a lot, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, but, uh, yeah. there's lots of ways to get mentors. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I, my, uh, I sort of perked up when you, when you first said, when you uh, sort of claimed your, your name, you know, it's something that I do uh, in my, uh, during my canoe trips, uh, men take a name for themselves. Uh, new warrior training does that as well and there is something about claiming you know a name that's uh that uh, inspires one and speaks to their their true spirit that i think is powerful powerful ritual yeah yeah i would agree i would think for me like i said i think i gravitated to that finding a name because to name something means that not only have you started to understand it but you want to understand it more it's not that you're categorizing it, right? It's that you're you're starting to understand it, and you can want to know more about it. Remember the the ending kind of scene in uh, Into the Wild, a, a wonderful movie about Chris McCandless who goes out to Alaska. Mm-hmm. You know the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. So he he uh, he danced with the name right. Um, uh, uh, it's not coming to me, but he gave himself a name. But at the end, when he was dying. He said everything needs to be, uh, you know, its proper name. And he wrote Chris McCandless on that piece of wood. Um, And there's something about naming our own name and naming things uh, properly Mm -hmm. that's that's powerful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep, I would agree. Mm. I've heard the saying, if you can name it, you can tame it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if I'd totally agree with that. Just because you can name it doesn't mean you can exert your control over it or ever should. But, yeah, true. But I think you can start to understand it, and possibly then you can start to describe it to other people. Mm-hmm. Right. So maybe I'm thinking in, in in my definition, claiming a name for myself is my way of saying that I'm ready to give back. Right. Mm-hmm. Not that my journey is over, but it's time to start to share bits and pieces of it. You know, so maybe yeah. it can help other people. Yeah. Sounds like you're stepping into, uh, you know, elderhood. Who knows? I'm feeling, feeling it. 
Oh, jeez. <laughs> Worn down. So uh, you mentioned you're writing a book, Jody. Tell me about the book. Well, the book is about all of what we've been talking about. is is mm-hmm. about men's work. Um, it's kind of uh, um, where men are at, how we got here, and what's what's available. What do we? What's the the path of uh, um, conscious conscious uh, manhood? Awesome. Is it available now? Or are you still working? I'm still on it? working. I'm, oh, I'm I know all about that. Progress. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know all about so, that. Yeah, I probably, uh, to be transparent, probably started it 15, 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I wrote in a flurry um, for a year or so. And I got probably to a place where I felt like I had put down everything that I knew to put down. And now is the hard work of really developing it and mm-hmm. sculpting it. And I, I've just gone to contract with a with an editor. So uh, my um, well, I don't know if I want to say yeah. I'll say my uh, I'm declaring by uh, this time next year. Uh, I want to have it, have it done. Excellent, yeah. excellent. Yeah, it's a process. I like so my first novel I wrote probably took ten years. Yeah. Um, the second one came a little faster and the third one still won't come out of my head yet. Okay. Um, so, but there's, you know, as an author, you always have about seven projects going at any one time. So I can fully appreciate yeah. that, but I've learned to trust that they come out at the right moment. And I sort of compare to, I, I don't know. If, I know Tim reads a lot and audio books and you're probably the same Jody. Mm-hmm. We seem to be of a like mind, but you always have that big stack of books, right? And sometimes you look at that big stack of books and it's like, man, I got to start reading again. But what I found is to dismiss all that and understand that when I need it, the right book in that pile will come out. I'll re- I'll pick up the right book at the right time. I've learned to apply that to my writing. Mm-hmm. Like when the book is ready to come out, when the world needs it, it will. It flows. It will, it will come. Now that doesn't mean that writing it's easy, but like when I start writing, I'm like you, you got to write like the devil's chasing you down. And if you stop, it's all, you're going to die and then get it down. But then, but I've to not like, it's okay to do that 10 years ago. And it's still, it's fine. The book will come out when it really, really needs to. It always will. Always seems to work out. Well, now having an editor kind of, uh, he doesn't have a whip and chain, but you know, it just helps to keep me accountable and it's, Oh yeah. Makes it real now. Oh yeah. Having that accountability is, is huge. And that's, you know, and and it's like I said, in my experience as an author, these things happen because it's time for the book to come out. Mm. It's happened. That's why those things are starting to happen. It's time for it to, Mm -hmm. time for it to come out. Being not a writer, at all like i journal but uh i it blows my mind to think about writing a book whenever i read a book i find it so fascinating or just incomprehensible that someone put this together yeah. was able to formulate sentences and paragraphs and chapters in a coherent way in a book that flows and it just when i, I so when I listen to people talk about writing a book, I'm like, I can't even imagine. Writing <laughs> so a book. wait a minute, Tim. Did you just were you just reading my preface? 
<laughs> I, I do. I, I have a story. I, I come, my family of origin, my father was a Harvard grad. My mom had a PhD from Columbia. Um, older sibs, high academic track. And I have, I still kind of have this story of I'm, I'm not a writer. What do I have to say? And I'm not a writer. I never was good at writing. And um, it's probably through the men's work that I just went, fuck it. I got something to say and I'm going I'm to put it down and I'm going to do the best I can and get help. And but yeah, the story of I'm not I'm not a writer. So we'll see. Yeah, you are if you tell yourself you are often enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you are if you sit often. down and write. I'm, exactly. doing like, it. I'm going, I mean, I, that's one of the things I say in the preface is about this. And it's like, I work and coach men in going beyond their self-limiting beliefs. Right. It's like, well, mm. I got to do it too. Absolutely. Yeah. Got to practice what you preach. Yeah. And like, you know, the, my, one of my favorite Mitch Hedberg lines, every, every kid, every book is a kid's book. If the kid can read. Everyone's a writer if you grab a pencil and a paper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just going about it and understanding it. I see music as the same way, though. When I listen to music, mm-hmm. it blows my mind that some it kind of came out of someone's head that all these instruments are playing at the same time and creating right, right. this sound. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. just an orchestra that stimulates your brain and causes feeling and emotion and and you know excitement to come up it just i'm like how did what how did this work and what was it like mozart didn't he write his first uh uh, piece at nine years old or something (laughs) symphony something like that yeah yeah Yeah. it's crazy yeah we can't all be geniuses it'd be a boring world Well, Jody, I want to thank you for coming on. Like I said, we have found one of the interesting observations we've made with this podcast is these conversations tend to last naturally about an hour and 15 minutes. Mm. And then they kind of, they naturally kind of drift off on their own. Um, I mean, we can keep chatting all you'd like. I don't mind. I just, Mm -hmm. you know, I also want to respect your time. We all have Mm -hmm. things to do today and whatnot, but I do appreciate you coming on. And uh, Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no there's so good much. I mean, as, as we're talking, and uh, because I'm I'm very devoted to to men's work, and so th- having this conversation, you know, lights me up. And mm-hmm. there's just so many. Oh yeah, we could talk about that. And oh, you know, there was mm-hmm. a piece you just talked about accountability. You know, that's a huge piece for men. How, responsibility, yeah, account. There's. So yeah, we could uh, we could yeah. talk for for or I could talk for hours anyway. Well, the good news is is we don't have rules on this podcast. We don't even really have a name, um, so we don't have rules. So yeah. uh, we can have guests back on anytime we want. And actually, thinking of now, wouldn't it be fascinating, Tim, if we basically just we get through one year and then we invite all the guests back to talk to us again for the second year? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. we're under no obligation to be who we were ten minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Yep. It would be a totally different conversation. Yeah. It would be interesting to yeah. see and see that growth. Well, Jody, uh, if people listening to this want to get in contact with you, how do they go about finding you? Uh, I can go to my website, which is returntothefire.com. My contact information is there, and there's a whole bunch of information uh, on there. So 
Cool. Yeah. And I tell you what, I, I'll make you a promise when your when your book is published, we'll have you on and we'll have a book opening podcast. Nice. Or a book revealing podcast. I love it. All right. Great. 